Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I hope everyone is doing well and breathing a little bit with all this angst and anxiety about the election next Tuesday. And along that same note, we've got a very special episode today with President Trump's former attorney and quote unquote fixer turned whistleblower, Michael Cohen. But before we get to Michael Cohen, let's talk my good friend Kamala, specifically Nora O'Donnell's horrible 60 minute questions of Kamala and Peggy Noonan's trash Wall Street Journal article about Kamala actually enjoying herself while campaigning. In case you missed the 60 Minutes interview, here's the clip. What I will do, and I promise you this, and this is what Joe wants me to do, this was part of our deal. I will always share with him my lived experience as it relates to any issue that we confront. And I promised Joe that I will give him that perspective and always be honest with him. And is that a socialist or progressive perspective? No. <laughs> no, it is the perspective of, of a woman who grew up a, a, a black child in America, who was also a prosecutor, who also has a mother who arrived here at the age of 19 from India, who also, you know, likes hip hop. <laughs> What do you want to know? <laughs> well, I want to give you I want to give you the opportunity to address this because at the Republican National Convention, yeah. President Trump made the case that Joe Biden is going to be nothing more than a Trojan horse for socialist policies for the left wing of the Democratic Party. Are you going to push those policies when you're vice president? I of the am States? not going to be confined to Donald Trump's definition of who I or anybody else is. Um, and I think America has learned that that would be a mistake. So just just to button that up, because you have fought for Medicare for all. That's not something that Joe Biden supports. If you become vice president, would you say to a President Biden, you know what, Let's we should really be pushing for Medicare for all, not a public option. That's just not going to do it. That's not my value. I would not have joined the ticket if I didn't support what Joe was proposing. And so our plan includes expanding on Everything that Joe, together with President Obama, created with the Affordable Care Act. By contrast, you have Donald Trump, who's in court right now, trying to get rid of a policy that brought health care to over 20 million people, including protecting people with pre-existing conditions. And he's doing it in the middle of a pandemic that has killed over 215,000 Americans. So here's why this question is bullshit. Everyone, including Nora O'Donnell, understands that Kamala's the vice presidential nominee and not the presidential nominee. The president's positions on matters prevails. Joe Biden wouldn't have chosen Kamala if he believed that she felt their views weren't generally consistent. She's not a socialist, and that's something I know Nora O'Donnell knows. And to conflate progressivism with socialism is both bullshit as it is taking a Republican talking point that's clearly bullshit and reframing it as a legitimate question. That's what we call lazy journalism. So why did she ask this question? Beyond the lazy journalism and absurdity of the question on its face, there's a broader issue. And that's what we call othering. And by othering, I mean the desire to treat Kamala differently than any other vice presidential candidate. There's always distance between the previous stances of a president and vice president. Kamala and Joe are no different than any other ticket in this regard. Now, on to Peggy Noonan, because nobody younger than 80 reads or cares about Peggy Noonan. Here's her quote about Kamala that I want to take to task. Quote, 
She's dancing with drum lines and beginning rallies with What's Up, Florida. She's throwing her head back and laughing a loud laugh, especially when nobody said anything funny. She's the younger candidate going for the younger vote, and she's going for a happy warrior vibe. But she's coming across as insubstantial, frivolous. She also called the dancing, quote, embarrassing. So let's talk about this. First, the only thing embarrassing right now is a country led by Noonan's party that thought that an obese, fell businessman recovering from COVID would be a better president than Hillary Clinton that dances to YMCA at his rallies. The bigger issue here is journalists like Peggy Noonan don't know what to do with Kamala Harris. No black woman in the history of this country has ascended American politics as quickly as she has with her unique style of seriousness, progressive politics and pragmatism, but still makes space for not taking herself too seriously. When American politics have been dominated by boring white men and boring white journalists that cover them, I guess Kamala is a shock to them and their racism is starting to show. I would say that both Nora O'Donnell and Peggy Noonan should know better, but I'm not sure they do. I also don't expect them to do better because I've grown accustomed to Kamala being poorly covered by white journalists. What I will say to those of us who support Kamala, who will support this administration, and who are always on the lookout for unfair coverage of Senator Harris, is that we should get ready for four more years of lazy journalism, othering, and just plain old racist coverage of our soon-to-be Madam Vice President, precisely because she's so different from what these journalists understand and have spent their careers covering. And that's that on that. My guest today is former Trump Organization attorney and Trump fixer Michael Cohen. We interviewed Michael because I think we're on the verge of the end of the Trump presidency, but we've not likely seen the end of Trumpism. He'll help us understand the origins of Trumpism and what the end of a Trump presidency will look like. Nobody knows Donald Trump better than Michael Cohen, and I couldn't think of a better guest to help us usher in the beginning of the end of our national nightmare than someone who'll spill all the tea on President Trump than Michael Cohen. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Today is a very special episode because I have my friend and brother, 
some of you all don't even know that we're friends, but we go back. Uh, Michael Cohen, welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast, my brother. How you doing, Bakari? Good to see you again. You know what I remember uh, was when we were at the debate with uh, Bernie and Hillary. I believe we were out in Long Island. You recall that? We were stuck yep. in this huge, huge building. We went to lunch together. We were stuck out there for hours. <laughs> it's true. People don't realize that you could be on opposite, as we were at the time, on opposite sides of the aisle and still be human to one another. And that's <laughs> something that's terribly in need right now there in Washington. I mean, in the olden days, they used to always say Tip O'Neill, right? Used to get into arguments with people all the time. And then as soon as the argument was over, they'd go for lunch, he'd grab a beer with them and it would, it would be, right. you know, business, you know, back to business, but not, not, yeah, not, anymore. not anymore. Right now it's so partisan, so divisive. And this is all, unfortunately, the result of our, you know, captain of chaos, you know, yeah, well, here, here we are. So, so talk to me about your legal career before joining the Trump organization. I want people to get a chance to know you like I do, because I think people may not realize that you've been in private practice, a real estate investor, a taxi medallion mogul, and you were CEO of a cruise line before. Walk me through the arc of your career, both in terms of your business ventures and your practice before you got involved in the Trump organization. I started practicing law in 1991. I was doing uh, medical malpractice and tort law, a lot of workers' compensation, a lot of negligence. Uh, I built in a firm that was downtown that I was working for. I built a very large following. I always had the ability to generate business. You know, they call them rainmakers. Yes. And I was very successful. I knew a lot of doctors. And I, somewhere along the line, I just knew enough people that I was bringing in a tremendous amount of business to the firm. But during my tenure there, um, I received an opportunity to buy out a client in the taxi industry, and he ended up leaving the country to return to Israel. And he's actually kind of famous because he's in the law school books. His name was Natan Moore. And um, what he did is he violated the debt accredited laws. Uh, there was a massive, the way he structured the whole company was wrong. He had all the assets in one company, which he was paying from his own pocket. So they pierced the corporate veil on a terrible, terrible death case. He ended up taking all of the assets, all the cash out of the companies, and then he left for Israel. Well, now the company was available and his ex-partner then asked me if I'd be interested in going into the business with him, which I was. And so I did together. My ex-partner and I built a fleet of um, 285 yellow cabs in New oh, wow. York City and started to acquire quite a few of them uh, on our own. The price of the medallions, and you could look this up, I think it was the New York Times Magazine section uh, several years ago, more like, um, I think it was like 10 years ago, stated that yellow cab medallions are worth more than gold, which they were. And my investment in them was relatively low. And then the price of the medallions escalated to $1.4 million per medallion. And I had quite a few of them. On top of that, I was taking the assets and you do what any good businessman would do. And you go ahead and you diversify out of your portfolio. You don't really want to keep anything into one specific asset class. And so I diversified and I started getting into real estate. And originally, I started buying new construction condominiums and then either holding on to them or flipping them. I realized that you know it's, it's easy to buy one 
apartment as it is to buy an entire building. And so I started getting into purchasing buildings that were rent stabilized properties, both uh, I should say mixed, you know, mixed use properties. Some had um, commercial space on the bottom, but they were all um, apartment buildings, uh, all walk up. Well, then I ended up selling uh, that portfolio, which was about, I don't know, about uh, 90 apartments. And I ended up then rolling that into a partnership with another group. And we ended up with about 117 apartments, uh, mostly in this one building that was about 90,000 square feet. It was 90 apartments, doorman elevator building on the Upper East Side, and then another one that was down in Alphabet City. And ultimately, I had to rid myself of these assets as a result of the guilty plea, because banks want nothing to do with you. So, you know, (laughs) not only do you end up losing the asset, but on top of that, whatever profit that you made, you're now required to pay 50% of it. Well, I shouldn't say 50, more like a third uh, to federal government, as well as your state taxes, which I did, despite what people think. And that's really, and then I became a partner prior to um, working for Trump. I was over at the law firm of Phillips Neiser. And after Phillips, while I was at Phillips Neiser is when Donald Trump uh, asked me if I was happy at that sleepy old firm, which I said that I was. And he said, but you'd be happier with me. And he offered me an opportunity to join him as an executive vice president of the Trump organization and special counsel. How, how did you all, how did you, how did you meet when there's, when there's a story about a, how a POA or HOA where you all met? Yeah. So that story is I purchased in the year 2000, along with my parents bought my in-laws, my ex-partner, a whole bunch of friends. We bought a block of apartments pre-construction at Trump world tower. And we did very well. We paid somewhere in the ballpark of about $500 per square foot. Wow. And yeah, which was incredibly, it was incredibly cheap. And when the building was built after about the first year, he, Mr. Trump ended up in a conflict. And I talk about this in the book, that's loyal. He ended up in a conflict with the board, with, with the condominium board. And Don Jr. at the time was building my new apartment where I had purchased a bunch of apartments at the Trump Park Avenue property, and he was converting it into one unit, which was going to be my primary residence. So Don Jr. asked me to come to meet with his father because his father was interested in me helping to take over the board. And we did. We were successful in the coup. It was done very well and was strategic. And in this specific case, Trump was right. The allegations that were raised against him were inaccurate. And as I told him, if they're right, I'm going to tell you to your face that they're right. And if they're wrong, I'm going to tell you as well that they're wrong. But he was not. He was not wrong in that specific case. And what his big concern was, was that they were going to take his name off the building. And the concern for him was that that would spark a series of unrest amongst many boards, especially on the West Side, that haven't been fans of the Trump brand for many years prior to his um, decision to run. Is that how? Is that how you became his fixer? Yes, that was the that was the very first um, 
job that face. I had done for <laughs> That was yes, the very first fix. Yeah. <laughs> Trump has yeah. a well-established reputation for stiffing people and not paying contractors and short, just fucking people over. Did you ever think at some point he'd fuck you over too? I never did. Actually, I was blind to him uh, and to his true nature. Now, you know, a lot of people give me a lot of shit for that and say, well, how could you be so blind? How could you be so dumb? The only thing I can say is I was I was in the cult. I truly believed what the man was saying and spewing. I don't know if it was the celebrity power that he had. Remember, when I went to work for him, The Apprentice was the number one show on television. The Art of the Deal was still the best selling book, you know, business book that was out there. There was, you know, always action going on, whether it was the planes, the helicopters, you know, the fleet of vehicles, the country clubs. There was always acquisitions. There was maybe I'm a deal junkie. I don't know. But whatever it was, he captured what I was looking for in myself to do. And what's interesting is, and I talk about it uh, as well in the book, and I have uh, on, my, on my podcast, you know, Mea Culpa. But one of the things that I talk about is while I was working for Trump is when I bought into that building, the one that had 90 apartments to it, and it made the real deal onto it. Cohen pays $58 million for this Upper East Side building. He was so angry. I thought he was going to be proud of me, almost, you know, like like a father or an uncle or, you know, someone who gives a shit about you. I thought he was going to be proud to see it. Now, I didn't show it to him because I didn't think it was any of his business. He was angry about it. He showed what the fuck is this? And I looked at him and I'm like, whoa, you know, that's it's a building. He goes, where'd you get that opportunity? Was it an opportunity that came to the Trump org that you took? I said, Mr. Trump, <laughs> when was the last time you were purchasing rent controlled in fair market, you know, buildings, you know, like this? I mean, that's certainly not a five star building, nor is it even a four star building. Right. So I said, had nothing to do with you. It was an opportunity that came to me. Well, how are you going to manage the building? Well, my partner has a management company. Ah, that's great. Just make sure that, that you don't invest too much of your time while you're working for me. And I'm, and I'm like, <laughs> is that it? You know? Anything good that was going on in anybody else's life, he really wasn't happy for. He really wanted to keep everybody as low as possible. But it wasn't really my nature. I, I, I can't explain why I stayed. I didn't need to stay. I certainly was financially secure. I, and as my wife and my children have said to me repeatedly, you didn't need to work for him in the first place. I was semi-retired <laughs> at 39. What yeah, the you... fuck are you doing? Wasting your time building his portfolio and fixing his problems. Why don't you take care of yourself? Yeah, I should have listened to them. That's for sure. Would have saved me a whole lot of trouble. Let's talk about your book, Disloyal, which is great. I got put onto it, as I told you this earlier, by, by Pete Strom and my, my, his wife, Susan. But they loved your book. You got a lot of fans in South Carolina. Your first book tour, I'm, I'm going to host it. We're gonna, when, you, when the Rona lessons get out, we'll do, it in, uh, we'll do it in South Carolina. Charleston, we'll do it in Charleston. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of tell-all books about the Trump administration, the Trump organization. And in your case, you were able to write about both. What do you want people to take from your book they probably wouldn't get from some of the other Trump tell-alls? Well, my book is different, for example, than a John Bolton or even a Mary Trump type book, because, look, while I was there for over a decade with Trump, I heard Mary's name mentioned on a handful of occasions, mostly by Ivanka and Don, but never by Trump himself. 
you know, Donald Trump is a flawed individual that really doesn't have family values. He doesn't have relationships with his nieces or nephews uh, or even his siblings. I sat with Trump not for 18 conversations like a Bob Woodward. I sat with him for 180,000. And I was in there understanding his ticks and his tells and his movements and how he thinks. So as I'm watching him now on television, ranting and raving, and people think that he's just being, you know, the Donald Trump clown that he generally is when he's on stage playing to the crowd. It's not true. It's not true. He's nervous. He's scared shitless. And now you have to say, why is he nervous? Why is he scared shitless? What's the worst that would happen to somebody like Donald Trump? Oh, he loses the presidency. Okay. So he gets back onto his 757. He flies off to Mar-a-Lago. He tries to work on that shitty golf swing of his and, you know, and enjoys, you know, eating, you know, more steak and potatoes into his late 70s. It's not the worst life for a guy who's a billionaire. Okay, not accurate. What he's scared shitless of is the New York Attorney General, Cy Vance, and the multitude of lawsuits that are going to come at him the Trump organization, his children, Kushner. He's afraid, beyond being afraid, of what's going to happen when he no longer has the power of the presidency within which to curb all of this onslaught of litigation that's on its way. And he knows, he knows that when that comes, that there is somebody that's looking at some real jail time here. And the end of his company tax liabilities oh, that yeah. are going to end up requiring him to sell assets. And most of his assets, interestingly enough, aren't performing. They're really non-performing assets. For example, take the golf course. Other than, for example, maybe the Doral, which makes a few dollars. You know, Bedminster maybe makes a few dollars, but the one that's in uh, North Carolina is a loser. The one in Colts Neck, New Jersey is a loser. The one in... Um, Ireland. Uh, Briarcliff Manor, Westchester is a loser. They they lose money, right? So he's going to have to now start to sell the performing assets because non-performing assets you really don't get good money for, right? <laughs> if you're selling it on a multiple of um, you know, NOI, net on investment. But let's talk for a minute about Trump's taxes. The Trump model seems to be build unprofitable businesses like you talked about that support his family lifestyle and use the losses to avoid taxes. At what point does tax avoidance become fraud and tax evasion? And that's something that you'll ultimately find out, you know, from the attorney general and, you know, probably uh, Cy Vance's office as well. But it really goes to, you know, mens rea. It's what the intent was. Uh, he'll obviously claim, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. You know, speak to my accountant, speak to Alan Weisselberg, speak to Don, speak to Eric, speak to Ivanka. Look, let, let me put it to you this way. Donald Trump will never take responsibility for anything. If there's a fuck up, it's somebody else's fault. Even though it's his, it's somebody else's fault. And he doesn't care whose fault it is as long as he's not the one that's held responsible. So regardless of whether or not you've been loyal to him, like an Alan Weisselberg, blindly loyal for over four decades, he will throw Alan Weisselberg under the bus. Not once, but twice, just in case the front wheels don't smash his head. <laughs> At least the back wheels will get him, right? He doesn't care who gets killed in the interim as long as it's not him that has to 
suffer the consequences of his, you know, of his actions. Now, he reaped all the benefits from taking all of the money over the years. But he will not take the responsibility. Not ever. First and foremost, Don Jr. will go down. Then Eric. Ivanka, certainly before him. I shit. I think he'd even throw Baron under the bus. <laughs> right before that he ends up taking any responsibility <laughs> the man is incapable of accepting responsibility for you know i was on a, a program the other day i won't even mention because it, it was so it was so stupid actually i will mention it it was the bbc with this uh anna barnett it was an absolute waste of my time <laughs> I'm, I'm giving this interview to this bbc journalist and all she wanted to do was to bash me, bash me. Here you have a guy that sat with Trump for a million hours, you're 10 days at that time before the election, and she wants to talk to me about nonsense. She wants to talk to me about apologies to Stormy Daniels and to others. Well, let me be very clear. I never slept with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> I didn't know Stormy Daniels. I've never spoken to Stormy Daniels. Can I, I, how, I is that, no, how does I that come up? How does that, how does that, I mean, how are you just sitting with somebody and, they're like, hey, uh, Michael, I just I banged a porn star. I need you to give her $110,000. How does that work? Yeah, that's not the way that it happened. What happened was I received a phone call from her lawyer, a guy yeah. named Keith Davidson in California. And the first time was 2011 when he called. And I'll tell the story in a nutshell because it's, it's, it's actually a longer story. But in 2011, I got a phone call. He was, she was unhappy. Because on the dirty.com, they put up a story about her. And since she wasn't profiting from it, she wanted the story taken down. The story, of course, was about the affair that she had had with Trump at that golf outing. So I go into Trump's office. It wasn't a, a comfortable you know, discussion. But I said to him, hey, boss, I got a question for you. He goes, what's up, Michael? So I said, you know Stormy Daniels or Stephanie Clifford? So he goes, why do you ask? I said, well, her lawyer called me. And they're trying to have an article taken down about the two of you having an affair. And he turns around. He goes, he goes, and I said, well, she's denying it. He goes, and so am I. I said, OK, I'm going to get a statement from her. He goes, you make sure that you take that statement and you send it upstairs. Is it all over the is it all over the Internet? Is this like a killer story? So I said, well, it's not a killer story. It's definitely on the Internet. But. One person I can assure you is not going to be too thrilled about this is going to be the lady upstairs, referring, of course, to Melania. So I get the letter. I send it upstairs. She calls me, asks me what it's about. And I said, it's some bullshit story that, you know, someone's trying to extort, you know, the boss from. OK, no problem. Well, now it's right before the election. And I get a phone call from Keith Davidson. Gina Rodriguez, her general manager, was out trying to shop the story. And supposedly, the way I was told, that ABC was taking the story and that she was going to be compensated money for this interview. Mm -hmm. Well, that's obviously not good because it's around the time of his uh, Billy Bush, you know, um, comment about, you know, grabbing women by their, you know, their genitals and so on. And this certainly wouldn't be good. Um, he then tells me, Keith Davidson, he also represents Karen McDougal. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, God, this is, you know, this is too much. Um, all of this in concert with David Pecker and the National Enquirer. I'm not the one that came up with the 130,000. Originally, she wanted 200,000. It's not going to happen. He's not going to say yes to it. You know, Donald Trump may be a billionaire, but he's the cheapest man on the planet. So I, <laughs> I go to him and I tell him, he goes, I'm not paying that. I'm not paying anything. 
So I tell Keith and blah, blah, blah. Lo and behold, he ultimately tells me that he wants 100,000. She wants to clear 100,000 and he wants his 30% legal fee. So that's where the 130,000 came from. I'm trying to wrap it up into a no, nutshell. No, I got we, could, yeah. we could take this whole thing. My point being, I'm not the one who had the affair. I'm not the one, right, who really owes, you know, who was responsible for this. I did this at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald Trump. And this was all worked and negotiated and discussed, not just between me and Alan Weisselberg and Trump and Pecker and a handful of other people, how I became the scapegoat for this man getting his Pecker pulled by a porn star and end up losing my entire you know, my name, my reputation, my family's happiness, my business, my law license, my money, right? I'm I'm losing everything because this guy can't, you know, keep it in his pants, right, while he's away, right after his wife gives birth. I mean, it's just, he's a disgrace as a human being, you know, pure and simple. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. What's his obsession with Barack Obama? I mean, I can see that it's a lot of racism and a, a black man succeeded at things he doesn't think a black man should be doing. But what drives his Obama obsession? And where the hell did they find a fake Obama? I, I saw that in the oh, the White House. He was able to fire the <laughs> fake Obama. Yeah. Well, look, you nailed it right on the head when you when you said what is his obsession with Barack Obama? First and foremost, Barack Obama's black. And you're right. He did not believe that Barack Obama or any black person can actually successfully run a country. And I talk about that in the book as well, yeah. when he was referring to Nelson Mandela. And again, when I tell these stories, I hate myself. I really do. I just I, I get so angry at myself 
for not standing up and saying what I was thinking at the time. Instead, I kept my mouth shut. Why? I don't know why. It, the cult of Trump is so much more powerful than people can understand. And I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to explain it. And it's terrible. I beat myself up on a daily basis for not saying things to him that I wanted to say so many times, whether it was when he's bawling out Don Jr., you know, and I, I would say to him, is it really necessary? And he would tell me Don Jr. is the worst fucking judgment of any human being he's ever met. Okay, you know, but he's, he's your son. I would I want to tell him, <laughs> fucking chill out on the kid. The kid's a mental case, right? And then, you know, let me go back to your question about Barack Obama, because I could rant and rave about the lunacy that went on at the Trump org all day long. It's because Barack Obama is black, and it's also because Barack Obama is inherently, and he's brighter than Trump is by a multiple. Yeah. See, Trump knows himself. And what bothers him the most is that he spends most of his day trying to prove to you that he's not what he knows that he is. Donald Trump, for all intent and purpose, is really a stupid man, right? He's unread. He's really uneducated, which is why he comes right out and says to you, I'm really smart. I have the best words. Uh, <laughs> bigly is not a word, right? You know, beautiful, huge. These aren't SAT words, my friend, right? I don't, I don't think he even took the SAT, right? His father brought him into University of Pennsylvania, right? Because they wanted it for status, right? No different than Kushner, who did the same exact thing. Yep. Right. They, they buy it for status. And then he knows he doesn't read. So I'm not sure how bright you can be if you don't read. You can't get your information from Fox News or from Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson and, you know, have an open mind. I mean, they're they're so far to the right. So he hates Barack Obama in a nutshell because he's black and really bright. Well, that, that explains a lot. Let me, as we, as we near the end of this, because I could probably talk to you all day and I just can't wait till we grab a beer together. I want you to take me to one of those nice steakhouses in New York. Do you York. know that I've never had a beer in my life? Do you drink at all? No. Have you drank at all ever? No, no, never. I, I actually, the only thing that I'll drink is I'll take, and I told this to the judge when they asked me if I have um, a drug or alcohol problem, I said, no. And they said, well, how often do you drink? Uh, I don't know, like maybe once, maybe twice a month, I'll have a drink. And it's usually a single malt, a Glenlivet 12 on the rocks, like just a one shot if I'm having a steak. My wife doesn't let me eat. She doesn't let me eat too much red meat. You know? so, <laughs> She's so, keeping you straight. Let me ask you this question. Thank God this, for her. I know. Thank God for her. This Trump she's, she's, my, she's my blessing you know, and, my, and my kids because without them, I'd have absolutely nothing well, you in my definitely life. Have a, you have a beautiful family. You're definitely, you, as, we, as we say down, down south, you outpunish your coverage. Um, <laughs> Does Trump lose next week? Yes. And, and I'm, I am 100% certain. You know, everybody asks me, how could you be so certain, right? And the answer is, I remember very clearly the metrics that went in, in 2016 and why I was so certain that Trump was going to win. And a lot of it had to do with the size of the rallies and with the internal polls that we were doing on our own. There was no way in the world that the polls were right because they, the, the way that they do the polls is antiquated in our world today. You can't call somebody up 
and ask them a 10-minute series of questions. Nobody worth anything is staying on the telephone for 10 minutes to answer a pollster unless you have nothing going on in your life. And the only people that you find that really do that, I, it's true. The only thing that's, that you find is that they go off of lists. So for example, there was one poll that I remember very distinctly that was a 1,000 person poll. And that 1,000 person poll was based upon 790 registered Democrats who have never voted Republican in their entire life you had about 99 or 100 Republicans and the balance were undecided independents. Well, no matter how you slice it, if all the, de- if all the um, Democrats vote for exactly. the Democrat, basically you have like what just happened with Amy Coney Barrett, where every, where every Democrat right, voted against and every Republican except yeah. for Susan Collins voted for. And it was exactly the way you expected it to be before you even knew what the results were going to be. So the fact she got, you know, con- uh, confirmed is not a surprise to anyone. Correct. And this is the same thing that, as it related to the polls. We already knew the outcome of the poll before the poll was even conducted based upon the class that was being questioned. So it was not a legitimate study. Today, it's very different. And you look at the metrics and Trump is losing in the swing states that he managed to pick up, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, he may go and have these rallies where you see three, 4,000 people who I think are crazy to be, <laughs> you know, to, to seriously subject themselves to the possibility of COVID and or death. Yep. All for what? To sit and to listen to this bloviated asshole sit there, rant and rave about himself? I mean, if you look at all of his rallies, all of his rallies about him. It's not about the country. It's all about him. And we're not, this isn't supposed to be a country about Donald Trump. He, we're not working for Donald Trump. He's the president. He's supposed to work for all Americans. He just has it backwards because he's a narcissistic sociopath that can't see past his own nose. Let me ask you this question. You, you don't believe Donald Trump is going to leave the White House uh, if Peacefully? he loses? No, I Peacefully. do not. So to explain to me what happens. Well, 19 months ago, when I testified before the House Oversight Committee, I was emphatic and I said my biggest fear. And one of the reasons why I agreed to testify is I do not believe that there will be a peaceful transition of power if Trump loses or now when he loses. Uh What he will do is he's already setting it up. He has lawyers around the country who are investigating into election law. He's got Bill Barr. He believes in his mind that he stacked the Supreme Court. And he's going to make it into a legal challenge, claiming that all of the ballots should not be counted because of ballot fraud. And he's setting he's setting that up slowly. You have to listen very carefully to the things that he says. Oh, all of a sudden, in Pennsylvania, they found uh, nine ballots on the street. And therefore, all of Pennsylvania's ballots should be, you know, unless you're going to change your ballot now and vote for him, they should not be counted because it's all predicated on foreign influence or election fraud. It's really, it's a, it's a shame. He's destroying democracy one day at a time. Yeah. You know, this is going to be a scary time 
But if there's anybody who can illuminate what's going on and what's going on around us, it's you. And that's why I'm glad I was able to spend a, a few minutes. You know, Bakari, can I say something to you? I'm sure. going to tell you what's going to be a scary time. Sure. The scariest time in America is going to be November 4th through January 22nd. That's going to be, to me, the scariest time. Because when he loses, one of the things that he's doing right now is he's calling to action this paramilitary group of supremacists like your, you know, your Boogaloo, uh, yeah, your, yeah. you know, um, your Wolverine Watchmen, your Proud Boys. That's what they're doing. He's calling them to action. Like when he says liberate Michigan, right? He knows what he's saying and he knows that what he's saying is very dangerous, but he doesn't care. Yeah. And, these people who run around with AR-15s, with helmets, with, <laughs> with bulletproof gear, right, driving in convoys like you would see in, the, you know, in Iraq, right, with floating the MAGA flag or the Trump 2020 flag, it's really not a joke. And yeah. when you see it, even floating down Fifth Avenue here in Manhattan, it's an uncomfortable feeling because these people are being called to action through a dog whistle that only Donald Trump is blowing. And it's going to be a dangerous time. And people, you know, have to be very careful and you have to be vigilant yourself. That's true. Well, thank you for joining us. Talk to me real quick. You have a great book out, New York Times bestseller. You got Maya Culpa, the podcast. What's next for you? My second book, which is going to be about the Department of Injustice. And I'm <laughs> going to take apart the case from soup to nuts, from the fake steel dossier that had me 11 times. Do you know that there are still stupid people that believe that I was in Prague? And I'm not talking about- <laughs> You're not even the right Michael I'm, I'm not talking about like the people on the, uh, you know, on the street, the, the Twitter, you know, bots. And so on. <laughs> I'm talking about legitimate journalists that are still calling me and asking me whether or not I was in Prague, that we have proof that you were in Prague. So let me say this emphatically. Not only have I not been to Prague, I've never been to Czech, the Czech Republic. I've never been to Russia. I've never been to Germany where they claim I came through, right? And then you have people who say, well, you must have a second passport. And uh, because you're a Jew, you must have an Israeli passport. I've never been to Israel. I don't have a second passport, <laughs> right? So, I, you know, the book is going to chronicle from the beginning all the way to Bill Barr's remand of me. And it's going to include the prosecutors, the Tom McKay's, the Nick Ruse, the Judge William H. Pauley III. We're going to talk about Petrillo, my former lawyer, the sentencing memo. It's going to dig deep into the 800-page warrant that was signed on a Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. for a Monday 7 a.m. raid. 840 pages of pure bullshit and nonsense. Completely, com complete lies one after the other. The number of people that received immunity from David Pecker to Dylan Howard to Alan Weisselberg to the folks at First Republic Bank. Right. Everybody receives immunity for what? To testify against me for a, for a million, one point three million over a five year tax error. You know, right now I'm and it's going to chronicle my lawsuit against my accountant, Jeffrey Getzel, that I'm suing right now for for malpractice. I mean, I gave every single document, not just if, if you saw how I am, I'm obsessive compulsive, the way I keep my <laughs> tax books, they're tabulated in three ring books that I would provide to him that the FBI took. Even the IRS agent 
turned around and said, I've never seen anybody keep books and records like this. And you know what it says on those documents right next to <laughs> right next to the deposit? It says deposit. His job was to reconcile the account. But Jeff Getzel is like a shit accountant. So what did he end up doing? He ended up testifying and giving information against me for his mistake. I mean, look, the book is going to be, you know, I can't wait it's for basically, it. you know, it's basically all about how you could indict a ham sandwich by the Justice Department. And welcome to how many people feel. Yeah. By the way, by the way, and on that note, that's why prison reform is so important right now and why the Justice Department needs an absolute overhaul. Because if they can do this to me, picture what they can do to anybody else as well. And they do. And it needs to stop. This country has taken the Justice Department, they've taken the prison system, and it's not about incarcerating you know, people who hurt other people. It's become a business. It's a business. And it's not That's supposed it, to be a business. It's a business. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I know you're you spending time with your family, but I, I, uh, you know, if you ever need anything, just reach out. But, but thank you and for spending same, some time. And I, I, appreciate, I, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. And um, we're going to go for a great dinner together All as right, soon as I get good. this stupid ankle bracelet off. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one, brother. We'll talk soon. Bakari, be well. You got it. Be well. Thank you. So during our last episode, we premiered one last thing, a quick note at the end of the episode of something that's on my mind that I want to share when we wrap up conversations with our guests. This week, I want to remind everyone that if you've not voted by mail yet, do not, and I repeat, do not mail your ballot off at this point. Either go vote in person or drop your ballot off at a designated drop box in your county. Why? Well, you're listening to this episode on October 29th. If you're listening to this and you've not mailed your ballot off by now, chances are it won't get to your local elections office in time before this Tuesday's election to be counted. This election is too important for your vote not to count. And as we saw from the Supreme Court this week, they will not be sympathetic to states that seek to count ballots received after Election Day. So the answer to this is clear. Either vote in person on Election Day or drop your ballot off to the local election office or a designated drop box today, this weekend, or Monday. Get there before election day, and if you can't, just vote in person on election day. If you want to know where these locations are for you, go to gettothepolls.com. Go there, put in your address, and they'll show you where your drop boxes are, your early voting locations, and your election day precinct. This election is too important to waste a single vote unless you're voting for Donald Trump. If you plan to vote for him, be sure to put your ballot in the mail on November 4th. Thank you again for listening to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Next week, we'll have two special election episodes. On Monday, we'll be interviewing my CNN colleague and elections guru, Ronald Brownstein, previewing Tuesday's election. And on Wednesday afternoon, we'll do a live special episode reacting to the election with none other than legendary political strategist, James Carville. You won't want to miss it. Thank you again from everybody at The Ringer, Spotify, and the Bakari Sellers Podcast. 